Come follow me, the Savior said. Then let us in his footsteps tread. For thus alone can we be. This is Lexi Austin, and you are listening to The Savior Said, Season 2. This is a weekly podcast that follows my study of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Each week, I will be using the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This curriculum can be found online at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For more fun, follow me on Facebook at facebook.com slash thesaviorsaid. Please note, episodes of The Savior Said are not meant to replace your Come Follow Me experience, but to supplement your own personal study of the scriptures. Hey guys, welcome back to The Savior Said. This is the assignment in Come Follow Me for May 25th through 31st, and it's the Mosiah 29 through Alma 4 chapters. They were steadfast and immovable. And guys, woo, this week's assignment could potentially be kind of a powder keg. Um, we got lots of political stuff that could possibly come into play. Um, also, just a show note, you may hear a saxophone in the background. Um, that's because I'm recording this as my son is playing his final exam for his band um, class that he has at school. So he's running scales. And uh, usually he's not doing this while I'm recording, but because of the time crunch and everything, we're rec- I'm recording while he is recording his scales for his band instructor. So, you know, I promise to always be real with you guys. So this is my real life. I have to listen to the saxophone a lot in my real life. So here we go. Okay, so jumping on into the assignment. Ugh, like I said, this, this week, I, I guess it's because I've seen so much on social media this week, people going back and forth about different schools of thought on the pandemic and how it's impacting us health-wise, how it's impacting us economy-wise, different things like that. So that's all fresh on my mind as I go in and I start reading this stuff. And so that's why I'm like, oh, this could potentially be very divisive. But we're going to start out with the first section. It's called, I Can Be a Positive Influence in My Community. And it says, just five years into the reign of judges, a crisis arose that would test Mosiah's declaration that the voice of the people would usually choose what was right. The issue involved religious freedom. A man named Amlicai, I'm going to say that with a soft C. I don't know if it's Amlicai or Amlicai, but I'm going to choose a soft C for that one. Amlicai sought to deprive the people of their rights and privileges of the church. There are likely many important issues facing your community. How can you, like the Nephites, make sure that your voice is included in the voice of the people? Perhaps you live in a place where the voice of the people has limited influence on the government. If so, what are other ways you can be a positive influence in your community? Okay, so I wanted to like pause there real quick. Um, So the Book of Mormon has, interestingly enough, like my family scripture study of the Book of Mormon, I remember from a very young age, I think I was in middle school. We were going through these chapters, and it specifically started in Mosiah 23 um, when we were studying that as a family. In Mosiah 23, verse 8, there's a verse that says, Nevertheless, if it were possible that you could always have just men to be your kings, it would be well for you to have a king. And I started thinking about that, and I'm like, okay, so when you have a righteous king, if he's helping make laws and programs in his country that help the people be righteous, that's great. But what happens when you have an unrighteous king like King Noah and he starts making laws and programs in his country that make like help the people become unrighteous? I don't think that a king necessarily makes people become unrighteous because at the end of the day, we all have a choice. But like they can kind of, you know, influence people to sin, I guess. And so I started thinking about that. I'm like, what 
do I want in my political rulers? And if I give them power over me to take away freedoms or to add freedoms, do I want that same power to be given to someone who I don't agree with or whose philosophies I don't agree with to be able to have that power to take away or to give, you know? And so from that point on, like, and I remember just, I remember this very clearly being in middle school, 12, 13 years old, being like, I am going to do whatever I can to make sure that my political leaders are valuing freedom. Because I don't want to have a political leader up there that's putting in all kinds of stuff that at first I agree with, but then the next person comes into office and does all kinds of stuff I don't agree with. So if I can limit their power, then I don't really have to worry about that. And so that formed like the basis of my own personal political philosophy. And because of that, I mean, it's it's followed me throughout my whole entire life. So as you were having family scripture study with your children and reading the Book of Mormon, know that you could be laying down foundations for political philosophies that will follow them throughout the rest of their life. It also, the last chapter here in Mosiah, Mosiah 29, where he's setting down like all kinds of, um, you know, I'm setting up the judges, we're not doing kings anymore, and here's why. The political philosophies that he's putting down are so beautiful to me. And I've mentioned before in previous episodes that the documents that surround the founding of America are some of my most favorite pieces of literature. Um, So much so that when I was in 12th grade and in AP government, I bought the textbook after that class. My teacher looked at me like I was crazy. And she's like, why would you want to buy this textbook? I'm like, because I just love the words that are in it. And I actually bought the textbook. I have it still on my shelf um, because of all the, the papers and the founding essays and things like that. All of the philosophies that our country was founded on are just beautiful to me. They're probably the most sacred words that I have ever found outside of the scriptures. And as I was going through and reading Mosiah 29, I kept finding myself like referring back to things I had read in the Federalist Papers or in the U.S. Constitution. So me being my nerdy self, I had to sit down and make a chart between what Mosiah was saying and what I saw in some of the founding documents of America. Um, I'm not covering other countries' foundings because I just don't know anything about them, guys. I only know about the American founding. I'm sorry. But so here's what I found. I found a scripture in Mosiah 29, and then I found some documents from the founding that kind of correlate with it. So the first one is Mosiah 29, 11. Let us appoint judges to judge this people according to our law, and we will newly arrange the affairs of this people, for we will appoint wise men to be judges that will judge this people according to the commandments of God. Okay, that's Mosiah. Here's James Madison in Federalist Paper number 57. The aim of every political constitution is, or ought to be, first to obtain for rulers men who possess most wisdom to discern and most virtue to pursue the common good of the society, and in the next place to take the most effectual precautions for keeping them virtuous while they continue to hold the public trust. The next scripture that I saw in Mosiah was Mosiah 29 verse 16. Now I say unto you that because all men are not just, it is not expedient that you should have a king or kings to rule over you. That goes back to my whole little 13-year-old mind being like, okay, so not everybody who rules over us is good and going to make good choices. So maybe I should, you know, limit that if I can as a voter, right? So here we go. This is James Madison, Federalist Paper number 51. It may be a reflection on human nature that such devices should be necessary to control the abuses of government. 
But what is government itself but the greatest of all reflections on human nature? If men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. In framing a government which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed, and in the next place, oblige it to control itself. Okay, up next we have Mosiah 29, 17, 18, 22, and 23. Here we go. For behold, how much iniquity doth one wicked king cause to be committed? Yea, in what great destruction? Yea, remember King Noah, his wickedness and his abominations, and also the wickedness and abominations of his people. Behold, what great destruction did come upon them, and also because of their iniquities they were brought into bondage. And behold, now I say unto you, ye cannot dethrone an iniquitous king, save it be through much contention and the shedding of much blood. For behold, he has friends in iniquity, and he keepeth his guards round about him, and he teareth up the laws of those who have reigned in righteousness before him, and he trampleth under his feet the commandments of God. And he enacteth laws, and sendeth them forth among his people, yea, laws after the manner of his own wickedness. And whosoever doth not obey his laws, he causeth to be destroyed. And whosoever doth rebel against him, he will send his armies against them to war. And if he will not can, if he can, he will destroy them. And thus an unrighteous king doth pervert the ways of all righteousness. Okay, so we're talking about an unrighteous king, his powers not being checked. Alexander Hamilton in the Federalist Papers number 70 says, The king is a perpetual magistrate, and it is a maxim which has obtained for the sake of public peace that he is unaccountable for his administration and his person sacred. Even if he's advised by a constitutional council, ultimately, a monarch is the absolute master of his own conduct in the exercise of his office and may observe or disregard the counsel given to him at his sole discretion. And another quote about this, this one from Thomas Paine, a body of men holding themselves accountable to nobody ought not to be trusted by anybody. So if you've got someone in power, just like Mosiah is saying, like King Noah, whose wickedness was not checked by any other organization, there's serious trouble. Like Mosiah is setting up this government so that there are checks and balances. I'm so impressed with Mosiah. Like y'all, like he's just so smart. And an example of this is in 28. This is kind of what I was just talking about. He says, And now if you have judges, and they do not judge you according to the law which has been given, ye can cause that they may be judged of a higher judge. And if your higher judges do not judge righteous judgments, ye shall cause that a smaller number of your lower judges should be gathered together, and they shall judge your higher judges according to the voice of the people. So checks and balances. This goes along with what Alexander Hamilton said in Federalist Paper number 33. If the federal government should overpass the bounds of its authority and make a tyrannical use of its powers, the people, whose creature it is, must appeal to the standard that they have formed and take such measures to redress the injury done to the Constitution as the exigency may suggest and prudence justify. Like, do you see the similarities between the American founding now and the things that King Mosiah are saying? I just, I just see lots of similarities in like the philosophies. Okay, last one. This is King Mosiah 2932. And now I desire that this inequality should be no more in this land, especially among this my people, but I desire that this be a land of liberty and every man may enjoy his rights and privileges alike. So long as the Lord sees fit that we should live and inherit this land, yet even as long as any of our posterity remains upon the face of this land. 
And I paired that up with the preamble to the U.S. Constitution. It says, We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and to our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. So I hope you see like the different philosophies about freedom and checks and balances and things like that that King Mosiah was putting down for the judges, how they kind of were reflected in the American founding. Now, I know the American founding was not perfect. I know that the men who wrote those words were flawed, but so is King Mosiah. We're all flawed. None of us are perfect, and we do the best that we can. That's just kind of some of the similarities I saw this week. Okay, let's go back into Come Follow Me. It asked, there are likely many important issues facing your community. Yeah, there are. Um, How can you, like the Nephites, make sure your voice is included in the voice of the people? I definitely think that voting is really important. In fact, I voted in every single election that I could since I was the age of 18. Um, Even like those little piddly small like runoff elections, I still vote in, in those elections because I feel like it's so important that we vote and so important that we do make our voices heard, even when it doesn't seem like it matters who the county coroner is, like it still matters that you make an informed vote, I think. Perhaps you live in a place where the voice of the people has limited influence on the government. And if so, are there other ways you can be a positive influence in your community? Okay, so here's the other thing I thought of this week is how do we agree or disagree when we're talking about politics? Because we have a chance to be very, very Christ-like when it comes to this. Although the behavior I see is often very unchristlike, And I was watching a really interesting article by a guy named Arthur Brooks, and he was talking about we don't have an anger problem in American politics. What we have is a contempt problem where we see the other side, I guess, of whatever side we are arguing for as worthless. And when you see an opponent as worthless, when you see them as not worth your time, then you can talk down to them. And what we have is people from both sides or all sides talking down to each other. And when that happens, there's no open room for discourse. There's no room for open minds, for people to have civil discussion one with another. You know, if you are going to try and convince someone of your point of view, talking down to them and yelling at them is not going to make them come over to your side. And if anything, it's going to strengthen their own stance at what they believe is correct and right. So, you know... (laughs) I think there's a quote where it's like, no one's ever been yelled into changing their opinion or or something like that, something similar to that quote. So I think it's really important, guys, no matter what side you stand on in whatever issue is appearing in your day, right now it all has to do with the pandemic that I'm seeing, that we have civil discourse. You know, Christ told us to love one another, and he told us specifically to love your enemies. So whatever side of the political spectrum that you fall on, it's still important to be able to be kind. And, you know, the reason why I think that this is such a divisive issue is because Satan knows that if he can divide us as a people, if he can divide us into factions, smaller factions of us as a people, then we are weaker than when we are together and united in one. Okay, so I'm going to do something kind of unorthodox here now. Um, This episode has already been kind of unorthodox, you know, quoting like American founding and stuff like that. And this is going to get even more unorthodox here. Um, There is a video of Lady Gaga giving an amazing talk on kindness. And Lady Gaga is probably like the last person I would ever imagine myself quoting in this podcast. But I want you to hear what she has to say because it is so profound 
about kindness and the way that we operate as a people. And she even talks about, you know, how hatred, she calls it hatred, but I see it as Satan and the works of Satan, how it divides people and how we can't have labels anymore. What we need to do is love everyone and be as kind as we can to everyone. So here we go. Without further ado, here's Lady Gaga. In times of chaos and crisis, what we all tend to do is start pointing fingers at where we think the bad guys are, where the evil is. We all start arguing. Everybody has different opinions about that. Please do not forget that hatred or evil, whatever you want to call it, it's intelligent, it's smart, and it's invisible. It doesn't have a color. It doesn't have a race. It doesn't have a religion. It has no politics. It's an invisible snake that while it is planning to make its attack, it is thinking to itself, I am going to divide my enemy into smaller, less strong groups, and then I'm going to make them hate each other so that it's easier to take them down. And as we're all yelling at each other, trying to figure out which group it is that's causing the problem, evil's winning all around us. We have to get rid of those labels, these different factions, rich, poor, mentally ill, not mentally ill, gun owner, not gun owner. None of this can matter anymore. We are unified in our humanity. And the only thing that we all know, we all appreciate in one another is kindness. So this has to come before all things. And you must operate relentlessly this way with everything you have. I've thought a lot about this clip recently, um, especially as I'm thinking about kindness as it applies to social media. But I started thinking about the world we're currently living in and the need that we have for kindness and for Christ-like love everywhere that we go. You know, we're currently in a situation where we are separated and we are apart from one another. The only times that we really come together are places like the grocery store or, you know, maybe out like at the gas station or something like that. And everyone's wearing masks. How isolated and separated are we from one another? I mean, that's pretty intense. So to be able to look someone in the eye while they're wearing a face mask, I mean, that whole the face covering thing can be kind of like there's something I think in our brains that goes like, like bank robber, bank robber, right? And so it's kind of hard to get over like the whole mask covering thing. But if we can look them in the eyes and, you know, smile with your eyes, that's that's something I've had to learn is to smile with my eyes um, in these situations. But to be overly kind when we are in those situations, overly patient, overly caring, you know, maybe the person in the grocery store doesn't feel the same way I do about wearing a mask. Be overly kind anyways. Maybe the person in the grocery store is freaked out beyond belief by the whole situation. Be kind anyways. Maybe you don't even think that there really is a virus. I don't know. Be kind anyways. Whatever you're thinking in your mind, realize that the other person that you are talking to, the other person that you're interacting with, may be having a completely different experience and a completely different school of thought. Be kind anyways. And that's something like I say it like I'm lecturing you guys, but really honest and truly, like it's something I'm lecturing myself about. Because there have been times where I've had very uncharitable thoughts about (laughs) different people and things that they were doing in the grocery store. Today, there was like a family that was just like waddling through the grocery store, taking up the entire lane. And I was like, I got to go places. I got to be places. And, um, you know, I had to think back on this and be like, okay, what would Jesus do? 
And, you know, I was like, he would just take his time. He would realize that maybe they needed this family time together. Maybe this was the first time that they really gotten a chance to get out of the house. And they're just, you know, taking it all in, being able to be out of the house together. And so I was like, okay, fine. I'll just look, you know, whatever here is in the aisle with me. I'll look at all the cereals. Maybe there's new cereal I haven't tried before, you know. And I had to shift my mind shift from being, like, so impatient and so frustrated with this family for not moving to, you know, kind of having a more Christ-like take on it. I don't know if that makes any sense, but that's definitely something I've been thinking about this week is kindness and Christ-like kindness and charity. And how do I express that when I'm wearing a face mask and share love and share Christ-like love with those around me? So that's just something I've been thinking about. So I hope you don't mind that we did kind of take a side trip there. We're going to move on from this section now to I can recognize and reject false doctrine. Although Nehor eventually confessed that what he taught was false, his teachings continued to influence the Nephites for many years. Why might people have found Nehor's teaching enticing? As you read Alma 1, 2 through 4, see if you can identify the falsehoods in Nehor's teaching, and you'll probably notice that they're taught alongside partial truths. All right, let's look at Alma 1, 2 through 4. It says, And he had gone about among the people, preaching to them that which he termed to be the word of God, bearing down against the church, declaring unto the people that every priest and teacher ought to become popular, that they ought not to labor with their hands, but that they ought to be supported by the people. And he also testified unto the people that all mankind should be saved at the last day, that they need not fear nor tremble, but that they might lift up their heads and rejoice, for the Lord had created all men and had also redeemed all men, and in the end all man should have eternal life. Okay, so the falsehoods that I see in these particular verses right here, he declared unto the people that every priest and teacher ought to become popular. The problem with that is if you are following somebody because they're telling you what you want to hear, is that going to be an unbiased thing that they're telling you? You know, I think our teachers and priests and leaders have to be able to tell us things that make us uncomfortable because when you're uncomfortable, that can lead to change. And we need to change our ways a lot of times. So if we're having someone that we're paying to teach us, you know, are they going to want to be able to say those things that make us change and make us become more like Christ if they make us uncomfortable? You know, there's something something to be said about that. Also, I think A lot of times we think about this having to do with priests and church that get paid for teaching and things like that. But what about the things that are popular in our culture, the philosophies that are popular in our culture that aren't correct all the time? I mean, if you were to look at the most popular movie, not right now because we're in the middle of a pandemic, but, you know, back before the pandemic, if you were to look at the top movies, the most popular movies, would they be 100% okay with your standards? Are they teaching you how to come to Christ? Are they teaching you how to be a better person? Maybe sometimes, but also maybe not. If you were to look at the top-selling video games, are they teaching you how to come to Christ? If you were to look at the top songs on the music charts, are they 100% okay with our standards? Are they even kind of okay with our standards? A lot of times the answer is no, but do we follow around and support them with our money and with our time? because they make us feel good. Like, I think that's probably the same thing that the Nephites were doing, whereas Nehor was going around telling them things that made them feel good. And so, of course, they were following him. But maybe sometimes we need to be made uncomfortable, too. I don't know if that makes sense. But that's kind of what I was thinking about a little bit this week. Also, I like where he says in verse 4, 
all mankind should be saved at the last day, that they need not fear nor tremble, but that they might lift up their heads and rejoice, for the Lord had created all men and had also redeemed all men, and in the end all men should have eternal life. Do you see how that would be very pleasing to the masses, even though it's incorrect? Now, he's mixing in correct doctrine there. The Lord has created all men, and he has redeemed those who will follow him, but he leaves the whole, like, those who would follow him part out, and it just says, redeemed all men. And in the end, all men should have eternal life. Well, let's see what the scriptures have to say about that. After all, um, we do see that in Alma 1, 7, and 9, Gideon withstood Nehor with the words of God. And there were scriptures that refuted Nehor's falsehoods. So let's see some examples of what these scriptures are. First one would be Matthew 7, 21 through 23. And it says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name have done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. And remember, if we go in and we actually look at the footnotes there, it says, You never knew me. All right. 2 Nephi 26, 29-31 He commandeth that there should be no priestcrafts. For behold, priestcrafts are men that preach and set themselves up for a light unto the world, that they may get gain and praise of the world, but they seek not the welfare of Zion. Behold, the Lord hath forbidden this thing. Wherefore, the Lord God hath given a commandment that all men should have charity, which charity is love. And except they have charity, they have nothing. Wherefore, if they should have charity, they would not suffer the laborer in Zion to perish. But the laborer in Zion shall labor for Zion, for if, the la- if they labor for money, they shall perish. Now pause. I want to pause there on that one. Um, that is something I'm always so super sensitive with. With having a podcast, I realize that it gives me a voice. And I realize that I'm coming into the homes and into the cars and into the ears and the minds of so many people each week with this podcast. So there's a huge responsibility that I feel... Number one, to make sure that I'm trying my best to give you what I can as that's correct and right. I know I don't always make it. I know sometimes I fall short and that's just my human frailty. And I'm so grateful for you that stick with me even when I am imperfect and incorrect. I was going to say uncorrect, but that's an uncorrect word. Incorrect. (laughs) I'm incorrect. Um, Also, the whole not being paid for things, it's something that just keeps popping up again and again. Um, I'm so grateful for all the downloads. My download numbers are high enough, though, that like my podcast platform wants me to start charging for podcast or start playing ads in my podcast. And then I've been approached twice within the last two weeks by different companies that want me to like sell their products to you so that I can get paid for the podcast. And starting out from the very beginning... My deal with my Heavenly Father was, is this is not going to be monetized. This podcast will never be monetized because that's not why I do it. I do it because I love the Lord and because I love having the Spirit in my life. And I feel like even this week, there was one particular company that had a product that was like, oh, well, that actually could be really helpful for some people. And, you know, I was like, Heavenly Father, maybe this could actually be a good thing if I promote it to my listeners. And the answer I felt just so strongly was like, the minute that you start making money on this podcast is the minute that the spirit and the help that I get to make it go away. And so I was like, okay, all right, we're we're not even going to push any sort of products or anything like that. So 
it's something that kind of constantly pops up and I have to keep realigning my pri- realigning my priorities to what is important when it comes to this podcast. It's putting out truth. It's putting out my love of the gospel, my love of Christ and the way I want to live my life and helping me realign myself to live more closely to Christ and his doctrine. And that's what I get out of this. And I have to keep realigning myself to stay away from that priestcraft of, you know, here, pay me money so that I can tell you good things that you want to hear. Not that I'm saying that anyone out there who has a podcast that gets money for it is doing that. Because guys, I know that there's podcasts out there. I know there's specifically LDS podcasts out there and programs out there that you pay for their materials and stuff like that. They've made that choice and they are totally fine. It's just the pact that I've made with my heavenly father that there would not be a money thing kind of going on. So um, I don't know. That's just some of the thoughts that I had this week. Okay, going on. This is another bout of scriptures that kind of, um, I guess, kind of defeats Nehor here. It's Mosiah 18, 24 through 26. And he also commanded them that the priests whom he had ordained should labor with their own hands for their support. And there was one day in every week that was set apart that they should gather themselves together to teach the people and to worship the Lord their God also, as often it was in their power to assemble themselves together. That sounds like the Avengers. Avengers assemble! All right, continuing on. And the priests were not to depend upon the people for their support, but their labor they were to receive the grace of God, that they might wax strong in the Spirit, having the knowledge of God, that they might teach with the power and authority from God. And I feel kind of that's where... um you know, again, that payment comes in that you have the knowledge of God and you're able to have the spirit with you instead of getting money for whatever it is that you're you're saying. Also, I will say this. I think, especially when we start looking at like our prophet and our apostles, you know, they all had careers outside of their current ministry before they became apostles and prophets and things like that. And what and rich background we have in the collection of our leaders because of their previous careers. You know, we have a prophet of God who's right now leading us in the middle of a pandemic, who's a doctor and a physician. If he had become, I guess, like a minister, I'm saying that in quotations, like his whole life, we would, I think, be missing out on a lot of the rich depth of knowledge that he has to lead the church right now because of his background as a doctor and a physician. You know, I I can't think of Dieter F. Uchtdorf without having a pilot background. You know, we would miss all of our pilot metaphors, airplane metaphors that he puts in all the conference talks. You know, I think about all these men who had different backgrounds and are using those skills and abilities that they cultivated by laboring for themselves to labor on behalf of us now and the richness that it brings to us. I think also in my ward, my current bishop is a physician. He's an anesthesiologist. And so when he's talking about the pandemic or he's talking about the spiritual side of the things that we're going through physically right now, like he brings such a richness to that. And because of his work and because of the job that he does, I think all of us who serve in our callings, we bring something to it because of our life outside of the church that we are able then to then contribute to the people that we serve. You know, so that's one of the beauties that I see in lay ministry that we have is that we have a more rich and more cultural, I guess, approach to ministering than maybe some other churches do. I don't know. Just a thought. All right. Helaman 12, 25 through 26. It says, And I would that men might be saved. But we read that in the great and last day, there are some who shall be cast out, yea, who shall be cast off from the presence of the Lord. 
yet who shall be consigned to a state of endless misery, fulfilling the words which say, They that have done good shall have everlasting life, and they that have done evil shall have everlasting damnation. And thus it is. Amen. Okay, so that totally defeats what Nehor was saying. You know, not everybody gets the grand prize. If you haven't put in the work and put in the effort and come unto Christ and remembered him, you don't get that grand prize, right? Okay, next up, it says, another way to approach your study of Alma 1 is to compare Nehor and his followers with the people of God, which we see in Alma 1 verses 3 through 9 and 16 through 20 is the study of the Nehor and his followers, and the people of God are in verses 25 through 30 and also 2 Nephi 29 through 31. So I made a list of some of the different things that I saw in Nehor and his followers. Here's what I saw in them. I saw that they were supported with money, so Nehor and the leaders were supported with money, that they all had costly apparel, that they beat up old people because Nehor beat up Gideon, loved the vain things of the world, preached for the sake of riches and honor, pretended to actually believe it, because in 17 it says, nevertheless, they durst not lie if it were known for fear of the law, for liars were punished. Therefore, they pretended to preach according to their belief. And now the law could have no power on any man for his belief. Very interesting to me that they did not actually believe this, but they were pretending to, so they wouldn't get in trouble with the law. Like, how interesting is that? All right, continuing on. They didn't break any major laws. You know, they didn't rob, they didn't murder, but they did persecute those who were in the church. Okay, that was Nehor and his followers. Let's compare that with the people of God. They stood fast in faith. They were steadfast and immovable in keeping the commandments of God. So they've got faith. They're keeping the commandments. They had patience and persecution. The priests still labored outside of their calling. Priests and teachers don't esteem themselves better than the people. They did in part of their substance. So everything they had, they also gave away to those who needed it. They took care of the poor, the needy, the sick, the afflicted. They did not wear costly apparel, but they were neat and comely. I think that's so important because a lot of times we hear, don't wear costly apparel, but it's still important, guys, to present ourselves as neat and well-groomed and, you know, comely. We don't need to walk around in like paper sacks all the time, right? You can look nice. It's okay to look nice. It's okay to wear nice clothes to church. Where we get into trouble is when we start thinking like, oh, my outfit cost this much money and their outfit did not. And so I'm better than them. When we start comparing and contrasting clothes and making clothes be like the marker of our social status, that's where we get in trouble. Okay, I just want to say that. They had continual peace, even in persecution. They began to be exceedingly rich, and they did not send away people who were naked, hungry, thirsty, sick, or that had not been nourished, and they did not set their hearts upon riches. They were liberal to all, both young, old, bond and free, male and female, and whether out of the church or in the church, members of the church or not members of the church, and had no respect to persons to those who stood out in need. Okay, so I want to pause there on something that caught my attention this week. Um, the phrase liberal to all, both old and young, bond and free, male and female, whether in the church or outside the church, having no respect to person as to those who stood in need. So liberal, if you actually go in and you look at the cross reference there, it's for generosity. They were generous to all. So I think a lot of times when I've read that before, I always associated it with like people who are in need. You know, they gave money to all these people. They gave food to all these people. But when we talk about our attention and our time and our respect, are we liberal to all, whether or not they're speaking in sacrament meeting and they're a 13-year-old 
deacon or whether they're like a 50-year-old high priest. We don't have high priests anymore, but, you know, a 50-year-old priesthood holder, you know, do we hold them in the same respect? Um, Both male and female, do we hold men and women in the same respect? Um, Outside of the church or inside the church, do we still treat them the same, whether they're a member of the church or not? You know, that made me start thinking, like, what are the needs that people have? And do I place, like, contingencies upon that? Like, you must be, like, this old to have my respect for this. Or you must be inside the church for me to treat you this way. You know, do I place that upon myself? Restrictions on how I care for others and and how I interact with others, I guess, would be another way to say it. So that was something I really had to do a little bit of soul searching there about. All right. So going back to my list here. How can we become more like the people of God? Well, that was one of the things, the intro, self-introflection that I did this week of like, do I respect and treat kindly everybody no matter what? That was some self-reflection that I did this week. Um, I like that they had patience, patience and persecution. You know, I think a lot of times we think about the people, you know, picketing outside a general conference. Or I think about when the Birmingham, Alabama temple was built, there are people picketing and protesting down at like the little intersection that's kind of at the base of the Temple Hill. And I still remember, you know, the priesthood kids, like the, the 16, 17 year old boys bringing down cups of water to the protesters to make sure that they weren't getting dehydrated in the hot Alabama sun. Like are people bringing them water to make sure that they were okay and taking care of them? Like to me, that was such a good example of loving those who persecute you. and. That just goes back to the whole like episode that we've been talking about being relentlessly kind to everyone we meet, um, whether they deserve it or not, being relentlessly Christ-like to everyone we meet, whether they deserve it or not. I think that's kind of what I was seeing this week. And, you know, so again, going back to social media, instead of blowing up someone's post when they make these posts where I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so stupid. Like instead going back and just either ignoring it or saying something like, I'm so sorry you feel that way or that this is, I can tell this has really struck a nerve in you. Um, Can you tell me more why you feel this way? And, you know, reacting with kindness where instead I would normally be inflamed. I guess, does that make sense? That's kind of what I was seeing saying in myself. And then come follow me asks, do you notice any priestcraft in your own service? And that was, you know, where I was doing some big introflection this week on the podcast and how I sit with it. And it was so interesting that that question came up just as I was having that offer to promote that particular product. And I was like, well, and then this came up and I'm like, okay, it's another sign. I don't need to do this. Yes, sir. Like I will, you know, this is, there's no monetary gain in this for me. So I'm going to continue on with that. All right, and continuing on with that theme, um, we go to the next section where it says, True disciples of Jesus Christ do not set their hearts upon riches. It says, Chapters 1 and 4 of Alma both describe periods where the church prospered, but church members responded to that prosperity differently in each case. What differences do you notice? Based on what you find, how would you describe the attitude that humble followers of God have towards riches and prosperity? And what do you feel inspired to change about your own attitude? Okay, so this is interesting. This is, you know, my husband and I like to play the game. Like, if we won the lottery, how would our lives change? You know, if you won the lottery, what's the first thing you would buy? And if you won the lottery, you know, what would you do with the money? That's like a game that we like to play with each other. And my husband, like, this is something, you know, his heart, he's always been very budget conscious for us. 
but he is one of the like least worldly people I have ever met in my life because, you know, every time we play this game, I'm trying to get him to say like, oh, I'd buy a Ferrari or whatever. But he's like, no, I'd probably, you know, pay off the house and I'd probably still go to work every day just so I'd have something to do. And, you know, I'd give what I could to charity and, you know, just kind of keep living the same life I'm living now. And I'm looking at him. I'm like, what? You wouldn't change anything? And he's like, well, maybe I'd quit my job and go work for Stakeout, which is like (laughs) a local food delivery company. Um, He did that apparently when he was a teenager and has always just loved working for Stakeout. He loved delivering food to people because of all the different people he got to see. And he loved being in his car. So, like, that's his dream job (laughs) is to go deliver food to people. Um, so if he won the lottery, that's what he would do. And I'm comparing that to like my answer, which is like, oh man, we would be on vacation in the Bahamas. Like we would be living in this like amazing, giant, gorgeous house. And we would be like driving all these brand new shiny cars. And I was like, oh, Lexi, <laughs> we need to maybe, you know, um, pull, pull yourself back a little bit. But you can also see like why together as a couple, that he does a really good job of grounding me and keeping me from getting like too out of control. Because there will be times where I'm like, oh, I really want to do this thing and it'll look so lovely and nice. And he'll be like, yeah, but do you really need to? Like, do you really need those $200 shoes? Like at the at the end of the day, do you really need those? I'm like, no, you're right. They just have sparkles on them and I think they're pretty. But, um, you know, I mean, he's really good to balance, balance me out that way. <sighs> All that to say, that's um, something that I need to work on, and I'm cognizant of that. I'm also cognizant that my Heavenly Father, in His great and infinite wisdom, paired me up with someone who was had a great strength in that area and is teaching me every day on how to be less worldly, I guess, and more focusing on, like, what do I really need? And are those needs fulfilled? Yeah, they are. And so I don't need the extra, you know, flashy stuff that sometimes my eyes are drawn to kind of like, I guess, what is it? The crows where they like the sparklies where I'm constantly like, Ooh, sparkly, you know? All right. The last section I want to talk about this week is the word of God and pure testimony can change hearts. What made Alma very sorrowful in Alma 415? And it came to pass that Alma, having seen the afflictions of the humble followers of God and the persecutions which were heaped upon them by the remainder of his people, seeing all their inequality, began to be very sorrowful. Nevertheless, the spirit of the Lord did not fail him. I love that, that even though he was really sorrowful and he was having a hard time, the spirit of the Lord did not fail him. All right. What did he do when he started seeing like this you know, downfall among his people. What impresses you about his approach to helping his people? And one of the things that he did is he gave up his position as the chief judge, right? That was the first thing he did is he realized where his priorities needed to be. And so he's like, okay, I'm turning this over to somebody else and I'm going to take care of my responsibility within the church. And then you go in and you see him go among the people and teach them. We can see this in Alma 419. It says, And this he did that he himself might go forth among his people or among the people of Nephi, that he might preach the word of God unto them, to stir them up to remembrance of their duty, that he might pull down by the word of God all the pride and craftiness and all the contentions which are among his people, seeing no way that he might reclaim them, save it were bearing down in pure testimony against them. And thus in the commencements of the ninth year of the reign of judges over the people of Nephi, Alma delivered up the judgment seat to Nephiha and confined himself wholly to the high priesthood of the holy order of God, to the testimony of the word, according to the spirit of revelation and prophecy. So he went among the people teaching them. 
And it's interesting to me, you know, I don't think he was necessarily beating them over the head because, again, that's not what converts. What converts is quiet, loving words and the testimony, the pure testimony that he he bore of Jesus Christ and of the importance of following Jesus Christ and remembering him. It's it's interesting to me, the remembrance. I love the word remember, and it appears in the Book of Mormon so often. I think a lot of times when we are doing really well in our lives, it's important to look back and remember the times where we haven't been doing well, but the Lord lifted us up because it's so easy to forget when we are doing well. And so he's trying to stir them up to remember. Remember when you were in captivity and the Lord got you out of it? Remember when I was walking around persecuting the church and the angel came down and bopped me on the head? Like, remember, remember this. Remember the good things that God has done for you. His pure testimony was what was reaching the people. And speaking of pure testimony, that made me think of one of the parts down in the Come Follow Me lesson at the bottom underneath like further studies for families and things like that. There's one on Alma 419 that's all about testimony. And it says, to help your family understand the power of testimony, you could ask them to think of a time when hearing someone's testimony affected them deeply. And so I started thinking about that. When has testimony really impacted me deeply? And a couple different instances came to my mind. The first one was this past Sunday was Fast and Testimony Sunday. It was the first Sunday in May. And our ward, our Bishop Brick, set up a Zoom call among our ward where we had a Zoom Fast and Testimony meeting. And at first I was like, oh, this is going to be a free-for-all. It's going to be hard. But no, they organized it really well. And it was a really beautiful experience to sit there and see the different members of our ward get up and bear their testimony on Zoom to the rest of the ward who's, you know, also participating via Zoom. And it was so neat to see that even in these circumstances where we are so separate and so apart, yet we were together in spirit and together in testimony. And just because we're physically apart doesn't mean that we're spiritually apart. And there's still power gathering together as believers. So that was a huge um, spiritual experience for me. I think it was very beautiful and very, like, it warmed my heart. It was really good. Other times where testimony has really impacted my own testimony has been when I hear leaders, specifically, I love it when the prophets and apostles bear their testimony. um, Because you know they know. And I love it when they bear it like specifically of things about Christ or different things that Christ did, their testimony specifically about Christ. I love hearing. Um, I also love when people are real and authentic and bearing their testimony. I don't I just I crave realness and authenticity when people are talking about the gospel, when they're talking about church. And that's why in this podcast, I try and be as real and imperfect as possible because y'all, I'm a hot mess. Um, but I love my Savior. And that those are the testimonies that touch me. Those are the testimonies that stand out where, you know, we realize that the church, it's not a museum for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. And when we can stand up and say, hey, I'm imperfect, but I still love my Savior and I still do the best I can to follow him. Those are the testimonies that really resonate with me. So, yeah, I don't know. I hope that answered the question. All right, guys, I know that this week's episode was like all over the place. I appreciate with you sticking through it with me. Um, I love you guys. I hope you are healthy and well and having an awesome week. Bye, y'all. The Savior Said is not an official product or endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. All comments and opinions are my own personal opinions and not representative of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The music used in The Savior Said is Fireflies and Stardust by Kevin McLeod. 
The hymn quoted in the opening is Come Follow Me, lyrics by John Nicholson. The Come Follow Me curriculum can be found at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For show notes, new episode alerts, and other fun and inspirational things, check out my Facebook page at facebook.com slash thesaviorsaid. You can also find me on Instagram. Comments or questions? Email me at thesaviorsaid at gmail.com. Content in The Savior Said is copyright protected. All rights are reserved. Thank you for listening.